Welcome to the July 14th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll compare the long-term outcomes of ibrutinib-rituximab combination therapy versus FCR chemoimmunotherapy in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Discuss the role of procoagulant platelet sentinels in inflammatory bleeding, and learn more about variants in the serpin C1 gene encoding antithrombin that cause severe thrombophilia. Our first blood article is entitled Long-Term Outcomes for Ibrutinib-Rituximab and Chemoimmunotherapy in CLL, Updated Results of the E1912 Trial, by Tate Shanafelt from the Stanford University School of Medicine and colleagues. The past decade has witnessed significant progress in the treatment of relapsed refractory chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL largely due to the approval of oral Bruton's tyrosine kinase, or BTK inhibitor ibrutinib, and the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax. Between 2018 and 2020, five phase three clinical trials were conducted comparing these agents alone or in combination with anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies to standard chemoimmunotherapy. The findings from these trials led to a paradigm shift in the first-line setting in favor of two new approaches. Venetoclax in combination with obinutuzumab and BTK inhibitor-based therapy. The E1912 trial was the first to compare ibrutinib-based therapy to the prior first-line gold standard treatment, consisting of fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab, or FCR. Early findings from this trial with a median follow-up of 34 months pointed to superior progression-free survival and a small but statistically significant overall survival advantage with ibrutinib-based therapy. Furthermore, ibrutinib-based therapy was superior to FCR in all prognostic molecular and biologic subgroups. In terms of safety, the overall frequency of grade 3 or higher adverse events was similar between the two treatment arms. However, cytopenias and infection were more frequently observed in the FCR cohort. In the current article, the authors provide an update on survival outcomes and adverse events from the E1912 trial after three additional years of follow-up, as well as an updated analysis on clinical outcomes by prognostic features. The E1912 trial enrolled a total of 529 treatment-naive patients with CLL, 70 years of age or younger. Study subjects were randomly assigned in a 2-to-1 ratio to receive either a combination of ibrutinib and rituximab, henceforth referred to as IR, or the FCR regimen. Patients in the FCR arm received six cycles of treatment according to the standard schedule, while patients assigned to the IR arm received ibrutinib 420 mg daily until disease progression or unacceptable toxicity, as well as six cycles of concomitant rituximab during cycles 2 through 7. Progression-free survival served as the primary endpoint, and overall survival was a secondary endpoint. Toxicity was graded according to the NCI Common Toxicity Criteria version 4.0 with dose modifications, and response to therapy was assessed using the 2008 International Workshop CLL Response Criteria with modifications published in 2018. Study findings confirmed the superiority of the IR combination at a follow-up of nearly six years. Namely, five-year progression-free survival rates were 78% in the IR arm compared to 51% in the FCR arm, 
a hazard ratio of 0.37, which was statistically significant. Moreover, even in the subgroup of patients with mutated immunoglobulin heavy chain gene status, who were benefiting most from the FCR regimen, the hazard ratio was 0.27 for progression-free survival, favoring the IR arm. Overall survival was still superior with longer follow-up, but the difference was less pronounced than previously reported, which could potentially be attributed to the use of targeted agents in the relapsed setting. A subgroup analysis for overall survival revealed that only patients with unmutated immunoglobulin heavy-chain gene status benefited from the IR combination. But the findings could be limited by reduced power for this secondary analysis. An analysis of treatment tolerance revealed that 138 patients in the IR arm discontinued therapy after a median of 25.9 months, of which 10.5% discontinued treatment due to disease progression or death, while 21.9% discontinued treatment due to adverse events. The median time for ibrutinib discontinuation to disease progression was 25 months. Interestingly, treatment with ibrutinib lasting longer than one year was associated with longer disease-free survival after treatment discontinuation, and disease progression was uncommon among those patients who remained on ibrutinib. In addition, a lower rate of grade 3 or higher treatment-related adverse events was reported for the IR combination compared to FCR, namely 73% versus 83.5%. Study authors concluded that the combination of ibrutinib plus rituximab offers superior progression-free survival and overall survival relative to FCR in both immunoglobulin heavy-chain gene-mutated and unmutated CLL patients. In an accompanying commentary, Barbara Eichhorst from the University of Cologne in Germany notes that this long-term follow-up of the E1912 study confirms the superiority of the IR regimen over the prior standard regimen of FCR. Furthermore, the IR combination appears safe and efficacious even in younger patients with CLL, independent of the immunoglobulin heavy-chain gene status. These findings are largely in agreement with those from the Phase 3 FLARE study, which compared FCR to IR in a slightly older CLL population. Namely, FLAIR found a significant difference in progression-free survival between the two treatment arms after a median follow-up of 52.7 months, but no difference in overall survival. The latter may be due to an increased incidence of cardiac toxicities in the FLAIR versus current E1912 study, but other reasons may account for the lack of overall survival difference. Eichhorst concludes that ongoing phase 3 trials should uncover how continuous therapy compares to time-limited targeted therapies, such as venetoclax plus obinutuzumab or venetoclax plus a BTK inhibitor. Next up, we'll discuss an article in Blood entitled, Procoagulant Platelet Sentinels Prevent Inflammatory Bleeding Through GP2, B3A, and GP6 by Rainer Kaiser from the University Hospital Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, Germany, and colleagues. Studies to date have shown that platelet function may be both protective and detrimental to the human body. Platelets preserve the integrity of injured blood vessel walls by forming hemostatic clots, but may also contribute to the formation of blood clots that lead to ischemia and organ damage. Platelets also have important functions in the inflammatory response. They recruit and activate leukocytes into the area of inflamed tissue, scavenge microorganisms to prevent pathogen spread, and present antigens to adaptive immune cells. In cases of systemic dysregulation of the inflammatory response, such as during COVID-19 infection, 
Platelets may serve as prothrombic and pro-inflammatory drivers and promote disseminated clot formation via degranulation, neutrophil recruitment, hyperactivation, and neutrophil extracellular trap formation. Increased blood vessel permeability and predisposition to microbleeds is a hallmark of inflammation that typically affects organs with a large microcirculatory network, such as the skin, the gastrointestinal mucosa, and the lungs. The group of authors previously demonstrated that immune-responsive platelets use cytoskeletal protrusions to detect and migrate along adhesive gradients. They then reposition themselves to the sites of vascular injury and leukocyte diapodesis, where they act by preventing neutrophil-induced microbleeds. However, the exact mechanism by which single platelets close the inflammation-induced endothelial holes and preserve vascular integrity is not completely understood. The role of plasma coagulation factors that may aid in inflammatory hemostasis also remains unknown. In the current study, the authors employed microscopy and genetic mouse models to better understand how single platelets and the subsequent activation of the coagulation cascade prevent inflammatory bleeding. Using a novel lactadherin-based compound, the investigators first identified phosphatidylserine-positive procoagulant platelets in the inflamed vasculature. They also identified exposed collagen as the central trigger arresting platelets and initiating subsequent procoagulant activation. In a mitochondrial cyclophilin D and membrane scramblase TMEM16F dependent manner, both in vivo and in vitro. The authors then demonstrated that platelet procoagulant activation facilitates the binding of the prothrombinase complex to the platelet membrane, thereby enhancing thrombin activity and fibrin formation. Procoagulant activation of migrating platelets is initiated by co-stimulation via integrin GP2B3A-mediated outside-in signaling and GP6 signaling, triggering a supramaximal release of intracellular calcium. This process effectively targets the coagulation cascade and restricts the activation of coagulation to those areas where vascular integrity has been breached. The investigators further demonstrated that platelet-specific genetic loss of either cyclophilin D or TMEM16F, as well as combined blockade of platelet GP2B3A and GP6, reduce the procoagulant activation of platelets in vivo and aggravate pulmonary inflammatory hemorrhage. Taken together, these findings point to a novel role of procoagulant platelets in the prevention of inflammatory bleeding and provide evidence that procoagulant activation of patrolling platelet sentinels effectively targets and restricts the activation of coagulation to the areas of breached vascular integrity. In an accompanying commentary, Madhumita Chatterjee from the University Hospital Tübingen in Tübingen, Germany, notes that the study by Kaiser and colleagues helps to fill in the gaps of our understanding of the mechanistic drivers of inflammatory hemostasis. Chatterjee says that these data lead to additional questions, including how mechanotransduction through GP2B3A-GP6 is influenced by biomechanical determinants, driving variations in blood hemodynamics across diverse vasculatures in vivo. Differences in endothelial phenotypes and their response to specific infectious or inflammatory cues across varied vascular beds may further add to the complexity of crosstalk between endothelium, platelets, and the immune, coagulation, and fibrinolytic systems. In order to achieve sustained hemostasis of inflamed vessels, while preventing pathologic thrombosis, 
Chatterjee believes that potential novel drug targets may emerge from the identification of subtle differences between phosphatidylserine-exposing apoptotic versus procoagulant platelets, as well as the mechanosensing versus signaling and adhesive involvement of GP2B3A and GP6. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Two Serpent C1 Variants Affecting N-Glycosylation of Asparagine-224 Cause Severe Thrombophilia Not Detected by Functional Assays by Maria de la Moreno Barrio from the University of Murcia in Spain and colleagues. Antithrombin is a glycoprotein and member of the serpin superfamily. It acts as an endogenous anticoagulant with activity against multiple procoagulant serine proteases. It primarily targets thrombin, or factor 2A, and activated factor 10, but also other procoagulant enzymes, including factors 7A, 9A, and 11A. Its activity is enhanced by its cofactor, heparin. Antithrombin has four sites of N-glycosylation namely asparagine amino acids at positions 128, 167, 187, and 224. Most of the antithrombin in the plasma is fully glycosylated and is known as alpha antithrombin, although beta antithrombin, lacking a glycosylated side chain on asparagine at position 167, is also found. Congenital antithrombin deficiency is a dominant disorder caused by defects in the serpin C1 gene encoding antithrombin. The defect in one allele significantly increases the risk of venous thrombosis, while complete or severe deficiency causes embryonic lethality. Antithrombin deficiency was the first type of inherited thrombophilia to be discovered. Even mild forms of antithrombin deficiency may significantly increase the risk of thrombosis. Thus, a diagnosis of antithrombin deficiency has significant clinical implications, including the need for extended anticoagulant treatment in symptomatic carriers and the use of thromboprophylaxis in asymptomatic carriers. The screening for antithrombin deficiency among patients with thrombophilia is currently performed by functional assays, which are based on the ability of plasma antithrombin to inhibit exogenous factor 2A or factor 10A chromogenic activity. Unfortunately, these methods fail to detect some pathogenic variants causing type 2 qualitative deficiencies. Consequently, antithrombin deficiency remains underdiagnosed in the general population. In the current study, the authors aimed to identify potential new variants of serpin C1 implicated in antithrombin deficiency. The investigators identified two new serpin C1 variants. One results in a glutamine to lysine amino acid change at position 227 and an asparagine to histidine amino acid change at position 224. In four unrelated thrombophilic patients with early and recurrent thrombosis who presented with normal antithrombin activity, the probands had no family history of antithrombin deficiency. Whole genome sequencing was used to identify a heterozygous mutation in the serpent C1 gene in a 44-year-old man from a French thrombophilic family, resulting in the glutamine to lysine substitution at position 227 near the N-glycosylation site at amino acid position 224. Subsequently, the same mutation was identified in a 43-year-old Peruvian woman who had her first deep vein thrombosis at age 31. Two other unrelated Norwegian patients with severe and early thrombosis shared a serpent C1 mutation, leading to the asparagine to histidine substitution at amino acid position 224. 
Taken together, the two genetic variants shared a common functional defect, an impaired or null N-glycosylation of asparagine at position 224. Patients who harbored these mutations had normal anti-factor 10A or anti-factor 2A activities, but impaired anti-factor 7A activity, and showed a loss of inhibitory function when the plasma was incubated for one hour at 41 degrees Celsius. Moreover, the beta-glycoform of the variants, which lacked two N-glycans, was characterized by reduced secretion, increased heparin affinity, no inhibitory activity, and a potential dominant negative effect. Mutation experiments revealed that the presence of lysine residues close to the N-glycosylation sequence can impair the efficacy of N-glycosylation. In summary, this study identified new factors involved in the regulation of N-glycosylation, a key post-translational modification that affects the folding, secretion, and function of antithrombin, thereby providing new evidence for the pathogenic consequences of incorrect N-glycosylation. In an accompanying commentary, Elsa Bianchi from the University of Paris-Saclay in Le Kremlin-Bicetre, France, notes that the study by Moreno Barrio and collaborators highlights the difficulty of diagnosing congenital antithrombin deficiency. Although routine laboratory tests can detect functional defects, they sometimes lack the sensitivity to detect milder forms. Undoubtedly, the development of more sensitive functional assays could help in the diagnosis of antithrombin deficiency. As demonstrated in the study, plasma from carriers of the glutamine to lysine mutation at position 227 exhibited a hypercoagulable state in a thrombin generation assay, while carriers of both variants appeared to have reduced levels of factor 7A antithrombin complexes compared to healthy controls. Bianchini believes that these results require further investigation to determine the molecular mechanisms that drive them. She further notes that the discrepancy between the results of functional assays and the severity of prothrombotic phenotype observed in the study suggests that beta-antithrombin could play an important role in the anticoagulant activity of antithrombin, as previously reported in animal models. She concludes that the development of overly sensitive or broad-spectrum assays needs to be approached with caution, because it could generate off-target results that may be difficult to interpret. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.